Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today called Hell Explained with a message entitled Hell and the Nature of God. So turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. C.S. Lewis, once speaking about hell, said, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. You know, I think in some ways we all agree with him. Anyone with the mildest sense of compassion for other human beings is horrified with the idea of hell. And the question that sometimes comes to mind is this, what kind of a God would send someone to hell? And it's to this very point that we dedicate today's message. So let's start with Exodus 33. The people of Israel have just sinned against God by making a golden calf idol and proclaiming that these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. And in response, God stands ready in his words to consume them from the face of the earth. And in response, Moses pleads with God to have mercy. He tells the people of Israel he'll go back up to Mount Sinai. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He's not at that point sure that God will forgive them. And perhaps all that's left is the utter destruction of the people. And with that, we come to Exodus 33. God begins by telling Moses he will have mercy on the people. Now to verses 3 and 4. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And with that, Moses pitched a tent. That is, before the tabernacle was made, that tent was called the tent of meeting, where he would go and meet with God. And whenever Moses entered into that tent, a pillar of cloud descended on top of the tent, and the people would rise up and look at the sight of God among them, and they would worship at the entrance to the doors of their own tents. And it is there in that tent that Moses would cry out to God for mercy for a sinful people. And on one occasion, and on this occasion, Moses seems to have left the tent and gone up onto Mount Sinai, and he's again praying for the people. And on this occasion, after so much prayer, the answer finally comes. Verse 17 says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. See, that was a significant moment. After a lengthy season of intercession, God grants forgiveness and mercy. And then in that moment, Moses, overwhelmed with the graciousness and kindness of God, asks something he has never asked before. Verse 18 records him as saying, Moses said, please show me a glory. You know, when I began this series yesterday, I quoted the atheist actor Stephen Fry. He said, if God exists and I stand before him, I'd say, bone cancer in children, how dare you? In Stephen Fry's mind, he would be able to stand and question God. Moses, on the other hand, has no such illusions, but he would like to see the glory and the majesty of God. Listen to verses 19 and 20, God's response. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man will not see me and live. So standing before God is like standing before a nuclear blast in order to question it. No one can do that. Listen to Isaiah's prophetic words in Isaiah 33, verse 14. 
The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Or listen to Psalm 119, verses 119 to 120. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Or listen very closely to Isaiah's description of the day of the Lord. That's found in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 19. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Now let me get back again to Stephen Fry's words. He said he would question God, for in his mind there is nothing there that should terrify him. And in truth, I suspect that's also what a great many others think as well. They've been so used to thinking of God from a perspective that has skewed everything. And what I mean here is that we think of God as love, and He is. But when we think of only one attribute of God at the expense of everything else, well, even the attribute that we think of becomes distorted and looks more like an idol of the mind than anything else. So where do we start? Well, let me start with one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, Psalm 23. Listen to the first three verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, wait for it. For what follows next is the reason why God is so gracious towards us. Hear it, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. See, I wonder if you heard that because I suspect many of us are still saying, he's doing all this stuff for my name's sake, but he doesn't. He does it for his name's sake or for the sake of his name, his reputation, his pleasure for his own self-serving purposes. And do you think this is the only place where one hears such a thing? Listen to Psalm 25 verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Or Psalm 31, verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead and guide me. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Let's go beyond the Psalms. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Or Isaiah 37, verse 35, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake. Or Isaiah 48, verse 9, for my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. And then two verses later, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, let's let the reality of this sink in. From Isaiah 43, verse 7, we even learn that God created everything that exists for his own great name. So imagine for me, if you will, a politician who acts to provide some benefit for her constituency. And then in an interview, when she's being asked what motivated her, she says, I did it for my own name's sake. Now, what she had in mind was to enhance and advance her reputation. That was leading her motivation. 
Now, what would you feel about that? Well, you might find that scandalous. Indeed, whenever we find people whose ultimate purpose for acting is always to enhance their reputation or act for their own namesake, we utterly condemn them. And yet, God says, that's precisely what he does. Please listen closely. Why is it that God claims for himself that which we condemn in everyone else? Here's the answer. If our politician is acting for herself, we might respond by saying, well, what about everybody else? Isn't their worth equal to your own? Oh, I know. There may be people in the constituency that are less virtuous than she is, but there are also those that are far more virtuous than she is. Indeed, we would say her worth as a human being is the same as the worth of all the other human beings. To act as if her worth superseded all others is to act unrighteously. But if God acted as if his own worth was only the same as that of the sum total of the human race, if he did that, he would be acting unrighteously. For the worth of the Creator who sustains the universe at each moment, whose goodness and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge and and power and mercy. I mean, all of these attributes are perfect and they're altogether glorious and they are worthy of the admiration and infinite praise of every single creature. Here's the important issue. The worth of God is infinitely above the worth of all other things combined. That's what it means to be God. So imagine, if you will, a human being choosing to save the life of a malaria-carrying insect rather than the life of an infant. Would we not condemn that utterly? Of course we would. Because a child is worth so much more than an insect. But the worth of God is worth infinitely above the worth of the sum total of everything, including all people on earth. And therefore, it is righteous for God at all points in time to act with the key focus of all his concerns, to be fully directed in delighting in the worth of himself. And God, who knows at all points in time what's righteous, acts out of concern for his own righteousness, for his own glory. Two thousand seventeen has been an incredible year of ministry. New ministries were launched. Truth and Life Today, a weekly video program with Dr. Newfeld, responding to your questions of life and faith. In doubt, our young adult ministry began nationwide Facebook Live Bible study events. Back to the Bible Kids launched three mobile games, helping kids to grow in their understanding of God, the Bible, and to memorize Scripture. These are a few of the 2017 initiatives connecting the Bible with people of all ages and backgrounds across Canada. December is a critical month financially for all of our ministries. This month alone, our goal is to raise $400,000. You know, it's a big number. But shared among all those who value these ministries, including the daily program with Dr. John Newfeld, we can make it happen. Call us today with your year-end gift at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say, who do you think you are, God? Here's a little secret. God actually thinks he's God. Anselm of Canterbury said, God maintains nothing with more justice than the honor of his dignity. 
A great American pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, said, God regards himself infinitely above his regard for all other things. And because of this, might I add, all of his creation should shout for joy. For the God who exists is holy and righteous and merciful and good and loving. We're grateful for God doing all things for his glory. Now, holding firmly to this biblical truth, I want to press forward to the next one. God's concern for his glory leads him to a very predictable action. Listen to the second command recorded in Exodus 20, verses 4 to 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. A jealous God, a God not to be trifled with. If you prefer something before God, God will act out of jealousy to defend the glory of his name. How unrighteous it would be for God to do anything else. It it would be like preferring a malaria-infested insect over a child. God is jealous for his glory. Let's go further. Ezekiel 39, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Now, if we had time and examined this text in detail, we would see that, that God had made an eternal covenant with Israel. But Israel sinned and incurred wrath, and because God had made a covenant and placed his reputation on the line, with that covenant, he was in jealousy for his holy name, going to restore Israel and cause a national revival for holiness among the people and restore the nation. And that would result in the only good thing that could come from this. God would be jealous for his holy name, his glory, his reputation, and his greatness would be exalted. And that, if you don't know it, is the entire story of the cross. God would never forgive sinners if in so doing he were not jealous for his righteousness. But God is greatly glorified in the cross. For there is the Father pours out his wrath onto the Son. He demonstrates for all time just how he feels about sin and unrighteousness. The cross is the ultimate demonstration both of the holiness of God and God's sheer contempt for all that is unrighteous. And of course, it's also God stating his esteem for his sinless son. See how easy it would be to spend a great deal of time on the cross here. I promise to get back to that theme by the end of this series, but let's get back to God's concern for his glory and and how jealous he is to maintain it. I'm reading now Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 19. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Now, the rest of the chapter details the curses, everything from diseases to drought to changes in weather to changes in the political climate to defeat before their enemies. I mean, all these are directed by God, a God who uses all of his power and might and energy to express delight in his glory and to bless those who delight in his glory and to oppose fully those who oppose the worth of the one 
whose worth infinitely surpasses the combined weight of all other things. See, let me now go forward to the end of the present age. When Jesus, who is the image and glory of God, returns, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And in the next chapter in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we learn that the lake of fire and sulfur, in which those who go there are tormented day and night forever and ever, and verse 15 then says, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. He or she was thrown into the lake where he or she will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what the text says. Now, I leave the wider discussion of the actual nature of hell to the next sermon, but, but I mention it here because it's necessary to ask and answer the question that has been asked in so many settings. See, isn't this just a bit extreme? You know, some of us can understand that child killers should go to hell. Hitler should go there. And so should other dictators whose, whose evil has caused ethnic cleansing. I mean, it takes very little to imagine the worst of sinners. But what do we make of the ordinary sinner? I mean, the kind that gets married and raises a family and works at a job and then eventually dies. Are they also to be treated in this way? Now, in the realm of earthly affairs, and I mean in the realm of human governments in which the rule of law and fairness pervades, in that realm, we all agree that greater crimes merit greater punishments. No one would want to punish a person who's gotten a parking ticket in the same way that we would punish those who have brought about the missing and murdered Aboriginal women across Canada. See, justice demands that the greater the crime, the greater the punishment, and the lesser the infraction of law, the lesser the punishment. See, indeed, if someone doesn't pay their parking fine, the world doesn't end. But to let someone go who has committed crimes against humanity, that is another matter. Well, very well. To this, no reasonable human being would disagree. The matter to which we disagree is when we assess how great is a crime against God and how great is a crime against his government over the creation that he has made. So what do we make of the one who says that God is not God? He's not all glorious. What do we make of the person who does not find delight in God? What do we make of the person who doesn't find their greatest moral imperative is that they should worship? What should be made of the man or woman who pretends to be God, who struts through the earth as if he or she were a trinity? Listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards in his work entitled The Eternity of Hell Torments. He writes, If the obligation to love, honor, and obey God be infinite, then sin, which is a violation of infinite obligation, is therefore an infinite evil. Infinite evil deserves infinite punishment. Therefore, such a punishment is just, and there is no evading the force of this reasoning, but by denying that God, the sovereign of the universe, is infinitely glorious, end quote. See, I think Edwards is right and expresses perfectly the biblical worldview. A crime against humanity is a lesser crime than a crime against God, and that's it. Failing to glorify the one who demands glory is a moral demand. We are commanded to worship because a failure to do so is a crime which is frighteningly evil. 
that nothing but the full weight of God's wrath can be demanded from such a crime. Listen, those who deny hell, they all deny the infinite glory of God. This is the fundamental dividing line of all ideologies. Show me a person who does not believe that sin against God is an infinite crime and demands infinite punishment, and I'll show you a man or a woman who worships an idol. And truthfully, failure to worship idols would not and could not deserve infinite punishment. And that's why when I'm asked if people go to hell for not believing in hell, I'm most often wanting to roll my eyes. Hell comes from not believing in God. And those who hold that failure to do so is not an infinite evil are really not thinking about the real thing. And that leads me to one final thought. I'm overwhelmed daily with the love of God, that a God who is perfectly satisfied in himself, that he doesn't need us, but who desires to glorify his name, should take delight in showing mercy to undeserving sinners. Well, that's more than I can take in that God should so love the world that he should give his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I don't know that I have the ability to grasp that, that the son should suffer wrath in my place is staggering. And so for me, the question is never, why is there suffering in this world? The question is always, why is there mercy? With a God so great and glorious, See, the question is never, how can God allow hell? The question is always, how can God allow heaven? There is the wonder. John, thanks again for this great series. Let me ask you a quick question. Is it true to say that if we only describe God as love, that really diminishes who he is? Uh, Yeah, uh, because when the Bible uses the word God, it means the God of the Bible. Uh, Sometimes when we say God is love, when we use the word God, we mean the God of our own imagination, whose entire purpose is directed to making me feel self-actualized or anything like that. We can't conceive of a God who would care for his glory above all other things because we've never conceived of God that way. And yet that's the only God that the Bible knows. And it's because we don't know the God of the Bible that we ask questions like, how can a loving God send people to hell? Because when we use the word God, we're not thinking of the biblical God. So yeah, we need to turn from idols and turn to the true God. Thanks so much, John. And join us again here tomorrow for more of the Hell Explained series on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you taken the time to check out our young adult ministry in doubt? Well, let me encourage you to do just that and to let the young people you know, family or in your church, that in doubt is a ministry geared just for them, geared to offer biblical answers to some of the most difficult questions of life and faith. Check out in doubt at indoubt.ca. Listen to the weekly podcast, read the timely in doubt news feed and find out about the in doubt live events that you can either attend yourself or join using Facebook live. Hear from trustworthy experts from around the globe as they provide biblical insights to issues like sexual identity, loneliness, anxiety, entertainment, and discuss fundamental issues of faith like, does God exist? Why is there so much suffering? Check it all out today at indoubt.ca. Indoubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada.